Um, I've never really seen a child and like a young adult in in the system who has had malicious intent just to be malicious. It's because they haven't been given something that they've needed. Um, and yeah, just be loving and kind and gentle and realize that we're also humans. Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to The Social Work Lens, a podcast produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Today, we are bringing you the third episode in a three-part miniseries focusing on the experience of youth in Vermont's foster care system. And if you missed episodes one or two, now would be a great time to go back and listen to them. Before we jump into today's episode, Kate Cunningham is here in the studio with us to share a little context about what you are about to hear. So I'll pass it to her. Hi, Kate. Hi, Cassie. I think it's great to give a little context for these episodes. Back in the fall of 2021, CWTP worked with the St. Joseph's Orphanage Restorative Inquiry, and we did a listening session which involved DCF workers and other survivors from the St. Joseph's Orphanage, where we heard stories of the experiences of the St. Joseph's Orphanage survivors. They also had written a hopes and aspirations list, which we pull from in all three of these episodes for youth who are in state's care, as many of the survivors had been in state's care many years ago. One thing that we learned with the St. Joseph's Orphanage survivors was that telling their stories brought a lot of meaning to their experiences and helped build resiliency and healing. What we hear in the podcast here with these two youth, Mercedes and Haley, is their own experiences and their own storytelling of what happened to them while they were in state's custody. The stories are raw, they're honest, they come from their heart. These two young women didn't know each other before coming in and doing the podcasts. And you hear throughout the three episodes that they just get to know each other and feed off of each other and realize the commonalities that they have and the experiences that they shared. Some of these experiences are hard to hear. They talk about being in different foster homes, in different residential centers, times that they had when they ran, experiences they've had afterwards. So... Do what you feel necessary as you're listening to take care of yourself, to process afterwards, and to really kind of let settle in what these two amazing, resilient women talk about. And we hope that you enjoy and learn something. So this is episode three of our three-part series of Speaking with Youth and getting youth perspective. And I am sitting here again with Haley and Mercedes, um, two youth who are no longer in the foster care system, but have been in their past. So welcome again, Haley and Mercedes. Hi, um, I'm Mercedes. Um, I was in the foster care system from the ages of 7 to 10, and then again from 13 to 18. Hi, I'm Haley. I was in the foster care system from 11 to a week before I turned 16. Thank you. It is so great to see you both here again. And in this third part, just as a reminder, someone who hasn't listened to the the previous two, 
We are going through a list of hopes and aspirations for youth in states care that were written in 2020 by the St. Joseph's Orphanage Survivors. Um, It was a restorative process, and the group was called the Voices of St. Joseph's Orphanage. Um, And they came up with a list of six hopes and aspirations. In the first episode, we looked at the two that really related to youth and the relationship with their DCF worker and being heard and being attended to. In the second episode, we looked more at alternative caregivers with advice about foster families and residential programs and how to best meet youth's needs. And in this last one, I'm going to read the last two hopes and aspirations. And it really has to do with access to youth information. And that's at all times when youth are in care, kind of having access to information that they need um, while they're in care, and then also having access to records post-care. So the two hopes are that there should be transparency and accountability from all parties. And underneath that, the St. Joseph's Orphanage survivors had written that Authority and responsibility should be shared and not concentrated in one agency or institution, and that caseworker caseloads should be reasonable. I know I think you brought that up, Haley, in our, our first episode, and kind of advice to DCF was about having a caseload where the workers can actually give you the attention that you need. Definitely. The second hope, or the last hope, written by the survivors of the St. Joseph's Orphanage are that youth have access to records. The state should seek ways to allow children access to their records when they reach adulthood. And the bullet underneath that basically just says, people deserve information and support in accessing their records. So thinking about transparency and accountability and access to your information, what does that mean to you? Um, Accountability to me, means taking responsibility for your actions. Um, And I believe that should go for, like, all parties around you. Like, every person's action has an outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of the time, caseworkers and supporters or foster parents, um, they don't always take in accountability for their actions. Right. So everybody, right? I know youth feel like... Their actions are always under the microscope, but really having all all people involved. Yeah. Um, I think that I know we touched on, I believe, what episode was it? One, um, the caseworker caseloads. Mm-hmm. Um, my worker was telling me she used to work in California as well, that, um, well, while she was in Vermont, she ha- was only supposed to have like... 15 cases and she had double that and then when she worked in california she was only supposed to have 25 and she had double that Yikes. so like caseworkers are like really overworked and it's horrible <laughs> overworked and underpaid overworked and mm. underpaid i um i read somewhere that social work and child care are the most underpaid career paths they are And that's literally, like, the development of the next generation. And you're putting the least amount of money into that? And I hate when people say, oh, you know, Gen Z's failing, blah, 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 all this stuff. Mm. Our generation's never going to last. Yeah, maybe because you pay people like that, like, crap. I mean, football players make more than the president. Right. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I think we got our priorities of pay very Very (laughs) misconstrued. 
Yeah, you're right. It's uh, where, where are our priorities? And I do hear, I don't think anybody who would be listening to this podcast would disagree with you right? about <laughs> yeah. the, the caseload size and the pay for sure. Yeah. And I love what you said, Haley, too, just about that everybody just be accountable for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I think transparency is important, too, though, because, like, you know, keeping secrets, dude, like, it's so many secrets are kept when you're in the system from caseworkers, foster homes, placements, like so many things are just thrown underneath the rug and not talked about or, you know. Mm-hmm. What information would be helpful to have? Like what what do you think was kept? Like in my case personally? Maybe your case and, and like when you think of... The fr- secrecy, like my case, my case was so secret. I wasn't even supposed to enter DCF. I was supposed to have a team meeting to bring back and set in place of how I could get back into school and have a smooth transition. And instead, the DCF worker went to court at 7 o'clock that morning, got custody of me, and at this team meeting where they told my mom for weeks in advance that my dad wouldn't have to be there because I wasn't being taken anywhere. Mm. And the secrecy was just so strong. They, they went to court. They got custody of me. I saw my dad two seconds before I was put in handcuffs and shackles at 11 years old and brought to a, a placement mm-hmm. um, to be held for a week. Um, oh, yeah. Like like two seconds. Two seconds I saw my dad. He literally, he went 90 on the interstate just to try to get to the DCF building to be able to see me before they took me. And so the secrecy is just so strong. Like there shouldn't be so much secrecy in like the cases and how things are handled. Like when you're told for weeks in advance, no, your husband doesn't need to be there. It's just a meeting to get things back in order. And you go to that meeting and then you're told that you're being taken from mm-hmm. the only family you've been with your entire life. Right. Like, that just, it felt wrong. It felt so wrong. Like, that should not have been able to happen. Yeah. And even if things change, I don't know your case, but even if things change quickly, which sometimes they do, to be open, right, and to let people know, like, kind of no let surprises. Let people know be- yeah. beforehand. Like, you could have called my mom that morning and told them, hey, like, some things have changed And, like, you know, I could get if, like, it was the parent who was a flight risk, but this meeting was because of my choices, my actions. My parents did everything in the book. They fed me. They clothed me. They didn't use drugs. They they were all so healthy. Like, they didn't do anything to get me taken away. I was taken away due to my choices, my actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they could have communicated and told them like hey things have changed like where we want to place her in a placement to keep eyes on her for a little bit yeah it's that reminder that even just like a quick phone call right even in a busy day but this yeah no changed. they went to court yeah. 7 a.m in the morning because my meeting was at 8 mm. 7 a.m they made an emergency court date got guardianship of me, took my parent- my mom and dad's parental rights away, mm-hmm. and I saw my dad for two seconds before I was put in handcuffs and shackles. Yeah. So really, yeah, just taking the time to, even if things change, let yeah. you know. The secrecy with the movements that they make, like when they move a child. Like when I was placed in programs for the first time, uh, I remember it was a Friday night. Um, they... Um, I did some extremely minor self-harm. Like, minor as in, like, it looked like I scraped myself on a table. Um, (laughs) And they decided to put me in programs um, for that. And then they had told me, oh, no, we were going to put you in programs that Tuesday anyway. You just expedited your your going into it. Like, 
I've had programs where they like the cops just show up or my DCF worker just shows up and they're like, okay, you're leaving. Pack your stuff. Mm-hmm. I can't even go to a sleepover anymore without having flashbacks, without mm-hmm. even like, like, it's horrible. I can't even have a quick transition where my friend says, hey, you want to go out to lunch? Or actually, our plans are changing. It like scares me so bad because I've had so many experiences with the secrecy of moving me and just throwing me around. The secrecy with moving is strong. Um, mm-hmm. There was times in the middle of the night I'd be in a foster home and the police and my DCF worker would show up and my shit's being thrown in fucking trash mm-hmm. bags and I'm being told, nope, you're being moved tonight. They give you about, they literally say you have 10 minutes to pack your stuff. I didn't even get 10 minutes. I had yeah. five minutes. Yeah. They five minutes to pack They give you things. like 15 minutes tops and they only make you pack like you have your no sentimentals. I have one belonging from when I was a child and not even a child. I have one belonging from when I was 13 years old. Like, I don't have anything from my childhood because of the, uh, the amount of moves I've made. Not even to mention, like, being in programs and placements. If you don't come back to take your stuff, your workers don't care about your stuff. They literally just throw it away or give it to other kids. They do. Like, everything mm-hmm. of mine is gone, like, from ages 13 and before. And that's that, that comes in hand with, like, some of the traits I have. I mean, I'm not, like, an extreme hoarder, but, mm-hmm. like, I have a hard time, like... Letting go. Not just letting go, but, like... Me and my boyfriend were homeless right now. And like, you know, our car, <laughs> we've had to um, literally like decrease our belongings and to like explain mm-hmm. to him how hard that is for me is like so hard because like he grew up in the system too, but he was adopted at three. And so he didn't get to experience all the things that I had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for him to be like, babe, we can't carry all this shit. And I'm just like, I I can't fucking let go of this shit, bro. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't know what you want. And so it's just so hard because, you know, I have, I had nothing because I was moved. Um, my first foster home when I was taken from my mom and then after the placement of the hold that they put me in for a week, um, my mom packed me a bag in my personal bag, not a trash bag. Like she packed me a bag. My bag was thrown away and I literally from there carried all of my shit in trash bags from placement to placement to foster home to foster home. And like, you know, like you did get an occasional good foster home who would give you a a duffel bag. Mm -hmm. That duffel bag would be gone in the next placement. They'd take it, throw it somewhere, forget Mm -hmm. where it is. And when you're taken, thrown back into trash bags. I have heard the term trash bag kid so mm. much because of DCF like i mean i've seen memes about it tiktoks everything like calling us trash bag kids mm-hmm. because you literally have to lug all of your stuff around in trash bags because nobody cares enough to give you all of your your stuff and nobody cares if it's what condition it's in yeah boy this really is it's a painful truth yeah and yeah. it it brings me back to the advice we could give the workers yeah right the advice you can give the foster placements, advice you can give the the residential placements. I would say working harder to keep all of our stuff together mm-hmm. because I kind of have the same issue a little bit as Haley is like letting go of my – not even just letting go of it but like I have a – I live in a small bedroom with my girlfriend and I'm like I need this stuff. I don't have that much stuff. I've limited down a lot and I've told her I've limited a lot down a lot of my stuff and I tell her all the time I've lost so much. Uh, I can't I can't let go of more. I'm sorry. When I lived with my ex-fiance, um, I brought all of my clothes, every piece of clothing I had, you know, even clothing that I haven't worn in like three plus years, but I still kept it. 
And um, when I finally decided that it was time to go through my clothes and like donate what I couldn't fit in anymore or donate things that I literally swimmed in, um, I had like 12 mental breakdowns putting shit in trash bags um, because like these are clothes that I had held on to since I had finally left the system and I was able to have all my belongings and I knew that my shit wasn't going to be thrown away. And so it was really rough for me when, you know, I'm I'm literally sitting there having mental breakdowns yeah. about donating clothes. And she had never, ever, like, in her life experienced the state system. Like, she had, she, she was the goody two-shoes child, like, never went into state system, lived with her parents her entire life. And so, like, she didn't know what I was going through and so like I'm having mental breakdowns throwing clothes away that are stained or holy or putting them in the donate pile and she's just like it's gonna be okay like it's not a big deal and I'm like you don't get it though (laughs) you you don't you won't ever get it and a lot of people are so uneducated with how much when you get out of the system like when you get out of the system and you're either out on your own or you're back with your family you either go one of two ways you become a hoarder or you live minimalistic mm-hmm. and lots of people it, it's it's not even a 50 50 or 80 20 like yeah. <laughs> it's just you never know which way you're gonna go it, mm-hmm. it just depends on how your system experience was and like so, no, I wouldn't consider myself a hoarder, but I do hold on to things like it's a sentimental value when it's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, it has meaning to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And boy, the um, what seems like such a simple thing, packing someone's stuff up in a trash bag, has the impact, this huge impact on you as an adult mm-hmm. or young adult. Yeah. Yeah. That probably won't change quickly. My boyfriend was very minimalistic. and I don't Mm -hmm. and so like you know when I first got with him like he had nothing he had his clothes that he's had for 10 plus years (laughs) and like you know he just lived so very minimal and I'm very like I need this to live Mm -hmm. I don't but I do it represents stability or or definitely sense of yeah yeah definitely yeah we didn't really get into that transition piece when we were talking about the alternative caregivers mm-hmm. and the residential. Do you have any advice on, on I know we've talked about just the, the stuff, right, and the timing. Any other advice? Like what would be helpful to know? How would it have been helpful to know ahead of time? How much ahead of time? My my program tried to make my transition very smooth, but I I got a girlfriend, um, and we took things very fast, um, and I ended up moving in with her and her family. Um, and so my program, my program tried to make things as slow and smooth as they would have liked, but mm-hmm. they, I guess, with lesbians, they call it U hauling, where. <laughs> They call it U-Hauling. U-Hauling. Which um, basically means so you, funny, you rent a U-Haul and you move in really fast together. It's a thing. It's a thing. It is. It's a thing. I've never heard of that. It's a thing. Yep. It, it really is. Mm-hmm. I U-Hauled on, on the third date and the third date was the third yep. day we knew each other. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's so a thing. Um, so we kind of U-Hauled um, and we moved in together very fast. So my program tried to do a good job of transitioning me but it ended up not working out not because of them because of me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you made choices yep 
my transitions were never smooth. Yeah. Um, they were always always very last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, never planned out. Um, I think things could have been planned out. I mean, I'm not saying I needed a week in advance notice, but yeah. at least like two to three days. Like, hey, just so you know, like you might be going to a different foster family or, you know, and I feel like making transitions smoother should be a thing. Like most of the time you're just thrown into this foster family who you've never met. You should be able to meet the person in advance and, like, you know, be able to yeah. get, like, some sort of, like, feel on them before you just mm-hmm. go there and live with these people you don't know. There have been, I've had so many sleepless nights where I'm like, oh, I gotta make sure, stay up so that this family won't murder me. Yeah. You My know? first foster yeah. family, um, like, I went there and, like, they were decent people in a sense. <laughs> they were really weird. And we had these little TVs. Think of, like... Um, you know when you go to the hospital, how, like, they have those TVs that, like, are, like, on the little stretcher wall things? Mm-hmm. 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 That's what their TVs looked like. They mm-hmm. were, like, little tiny, like, looking hospital TVs. And, um, my TV volume was on three all night. So, so silent. Yeah. I went downstairs for breakfast the next morning and I got screamed at and disciplined being told that if I didn't sleep with the TV quieter, they were going to take it. It was on three. (laughs) How much quieter can you get a TV? And so, like, the next night, I put it on two. And they're like, it was still loud. They came upstairs. They followed me upstairs. They took a pair of scissors and they cut the cord to the TV. Mm. Wow. In front of my face. And they said, guess you won't be fucking watching television now, will you? And I was just like, are you for real right now? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A, it seems a little extreme. And B... Again, I just go back to the the ability to tell somebody this, right? That chance or that opportunity yeah. to be open and let somebody know your your worker, your guardian ad litem. Definitely. Yeah. Kind of the way that you were being treated. I think you both have said that you've off record um, or off the recording, um, that you both have had some access to your information since... Um, leaving the system. I didn't even um, know I no. was allowed to have ac- access to it until I needed it for um, court documents. I haven't gotten any access to it. I've asked a few different times. Um, mm-hmm. My DCF worker, like, gave... So I had my DCF worker for, like, two years, and all of a sudden, it was, like, a Monday, and she was like, yeah, my last day is Wednesday. Yeah. Like, and I had such a good relationship with her. Like, we still talk because I love her mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm. Like, she's one of my favorite people. Um, And she just, like, gave me... Um, one of the supervisor's emails and then I went with a different worker this was my last like two months in foster care went with a different worker she quit like three weeks later and so I was finally just given to the supervisor mm. um, my case was just given to her but my going out of DCF was super weird I had a lot of transition and I was basically just done with DCF at that point I was like this is just the epitome of DCF mm. like just being <laughs> getting out of DCF like, is, is such a long process it's so weird and I'm like you guys have already <laughs> made my life difficult enough could you like at least make my tra- transition somewhat smooth I have also had to um, figure out a few years ago they actually messed up my social security number mm. they lost my social security card my birth certificate my everything um, and they got my social security number wrong I was using the wrong social security number for five years oof yeah. Um, and I've had to recently fix it as an adult um, and yeah. make sure, cover my tracks, make sure that it's right on everything. 
having access to even my like personal information, my 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 insurance and my social security number. I didn't know my social security number for five years. Like right, I didn't even right. get that much information about myself. They didn't give anything back to my family after I discharged. Really? My birth certificate, social security card, my insurance card. None of that was given back to my family. Don't oh. know where it went, but we had to jump through jump through hoops yeah. to get everything. Back in 2021, yeah, they lost all my documents and they just reprinted them. They didn't even think to track down where the original where ones were. were. Mm. They didn't even. They One day they just called me. They were like, yeah, we lost all your documents. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? That's like a big deal. I still don't have my insurance card. I'm just going to order a new one. <laughs> Anyways, I had to do it. Yeah, I'm I'm about to. I, I got to make a phone call. But yeah, that's adult that, stuff. Yeah, yeah. is this isn't even part of kind of the, the hopes and aspirations. But what would make transitioning out of DCF helpful I, besides getting your documents? A better plan, <laughs> a better plan, like setting us up for success while just discharging, not just like discharging us and like, you know, relying on either us or our parents to pick up the the missing pieces because mm-hmm. like we yeah. you're not really given a plan plan like you're given your transitional plan like oh all right you're gonna leave this placement on this day to go back to here this person will pick you up and that's it yeah not like a plan or like checking in like every two to three months like hey yeah. how are things going like do you need any help finding resources for anything? Like, there should be a better plan set in place, not just the transitional plan. Yeah. I I'm could I could it. use a hotline after aftercare DCF yeah. hotline <laughs> to be like, yo, how do I access my files? Where is this information? Yeah. I need this from yeah. you guys. <laughs> not a bad idea after there. After you age out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that'd be, be so nice if there was just, like, some designated workers to, like, yeah. go back through the system and see if they could get that information for you or get, like... Well, it's all of- saved in the files. Mm-hmm. They have it. Yeah. Like, there's there should be there should be an after an aftercare hotline. Yeah. That's smart. I wasn't even told about YDP or Spectrum until like years after I discharged from the program. I literally joined Spectrum last year. Oh. Yeah. No, Spectrum has been honestly great to me. I um I got with Spectrum about when I was well, I was living in Massachusetts when I was fifteen, so they apparently couldn't put in the referral mm. when I was in Massachusetts and I couldn't be with it. Anyways, even though I was like the plan was to come back to Vermont and I was definitely coming back because, yeah, I was just in uh, intensive treatment um, down there. And when I aged out of the system, um, they I had a worker who she kind of knew what she was doing. She was very new and it wasn't her fault. She was a lovely human being. But now that I have my new worker, she's much more experienced and she knows a lot more, mm-hmm. which again, wasn't my old worker's fault, but right. um, she just didn't know as much as my new worker does. Um, and it's very helpful to have the financial resources and just the resource of my YDB worker having so much knowledge. That's definitely helped in my transition. Still is even helping me. Like, I'm trying to find an apartment right now. And I'm trying to work through my life as a young adult. And it has been super helpful not having a person like a worker, like a DCF worker, I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, But just like a, it's just all my interactions with YDP have felt superhuman. Great. And I love it. Yeah. So YDP, Spectrum, there Mm -hmm. are resources. Yeah. Were you aware of the resources when you were either aging yeah. out? Or, okay. Um, I had my my sister went into it as soon as she could at mm-hmm. fifteen, and 
Some families take advantage of that, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. A lot of families take advantage of uh, the the money that is given from kids who use YDP and Spectrum. Mm. But, you know, people get greedy with money and whatever. And as soon as some families know there's money involved, they're like, ooh, give me some of that. But for the most part, YDP has been extremely helpful. Me turning 18, I didn't know too much about them when I was like 16, 17. I didn't know all the benefits. But now that I'm I'm like 18, I'm like, um, heck yeah. Yeah. Right. And you have access. Yeah. And I, I call and text my YDP worker all the time. She's the only one in my county. Mm-hmm. So I 100% give her some leeway because it must be a lot of work to be the only worker. She said that she also works part time for an oh, entire boy. county. Yeah. Like, yep. that's crazy. It's a caseload size again, right? Mm-hmm. When we talk about things for everybody. Yep. All resources. Whew. Well, I feel like we've, we've covered a lot in three episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, 100%, you have my my heart. You have my everything about me that, to send out to give, give love to you and my gratitude. So much for all this conversation. I do have one last question. Yep. Because we went through some of the hopes and aspirations of the Voices of St. Joseph's Orphanage. And I'm just curious, what hope or aspiration would you give for youth, young people growing up who might be in the system? I would like for foster families to be more looked into. Um, and, like, I have younger siblings. I have siblings that are so much younger than me that are all in the foster care system. And I just want the best for them. You know, I just want them to be loved and safe. It's honestly not that big of an ask. Sadly, it's not that big of an ask. I just want them to be loved and cared for because even though I don't know them that well, they're they're probably amazing kids, you know, and all kids should be given a good chance, you know. Absolutely. I just think like, you know, like what I said before, um, children not being excluded in foster homes and treated as if they're their own. I also do believe that there really should be way stricter requirements to be a foster parent Mm -hmm. and more extensive training. And I firmly believe that the training to be a foster parent shouldn't be a one and done. Mm -hmm. To be a foster parent, you should have to attend monthly trainings. Well, thank you both. I send you you off into the world. Thank you for having us. You you have been amazing, open, mature, thoughtful, lovely— Human. Thank you. It's been lovely talking. (laughs) The Social Work Lens is produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Our theme music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop. And our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Egan Media Productions. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our in-house administrative production assistant, Emma Baird. For The Social Work Lens, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.